Hello ladies and gentlemen, I'm Judith Fallon-Reed and welcome to Shelf Life TV, where I have great conversations with Caribbean authors about their lives and books. If you have yet subscribed to this podcast, please do so. You'll always know when new episodes are available. The video of this episode is available also on my YouTube channel. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel and check out my website at jfallonreed.com. Also, check out my other podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Now it's time to share what's on my shelf. Welcome to Shelf Life. Today on Shelf Life, I'm speaking with Linda Edwards, and we're talking about her book, Friendship Estate. Now, from you hear the word estate, you know that we're going back in time to some slavery time. But this book is a little bit different. This book kind of takes you a little bit into the truth, a little bit of fantasy, and down a road of what would have happened if it had happened this way. <laughs> it's a bit about her family too. There's quite a bit of her family in the book. And so... We're going to share this great book called Friendship Estate with you. Join me as I talk to Linda. So, hello, Linda. How are you? So good to have you on Shelf Life today. Really nice to have My you. My pleasure. I've been looking My pleasure. My pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation because, oh, that book, <laughs> that book. But before we get to the book, I'd like to just, I like usually for my audience to get to know you, the author. Because a lot of times, you know, people just talk about the book and we never really get to learn much about you. So tell me about Linda. Where, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Well, Linda was born in Mandeville at Hargreaves Memorial Hospital. My family was predominantly in in Manchester, in Mandeville proper, right, in off of Villa Road. Um, I lived on Woodlawn Road for a while, and then we lived in Mount Nelson. So after that, I went to Bel Air. Okay. And then I went to Kingston, where I went to St. Andrews High School for Girls. Okay. And that was, was my growing up. My um, stomping grounds was all the way from Mandeville down to Treasure Beach, the Alligator Pond, all of that side of the world. And we have a lot in common because I too grew up in Mandeville until I was 10. And don't tell that to people who know me from high school because I swear blind that I'm from Montego Bay. <laughs> I'm not from Montego Bay. <laughs> I uh, went to school in Montego Bay, but I left Mandeville at 10 and I wasn't born in Mandeville either, but I left there at 10. But for me, that's still home, you know, because my formative years were there. And I lived on Woodlawn Road, right around the corner. So that we have that in common. And our stomping ground was also Treasure Beach and Alligator Pond. And I still love that area. Such a beautiful area. And, and I noticed that your book is set in that area. Both my books were set in that area. In that area. Um, the first book was Kingston, but Alligator Pond played a very, very central role in, in that book. And Friendship Estate is definitely in that area. I took a little artistic license with that because mm -hmm. I the original Friendship Estate was actually more Westmoreland side. Okay. But St. Elizabeth is where my heart is. St. <laughs> Bestman, the bread, bread basket of Jamaica. The mm -hmm. bread basket of Jamaica. When did you start writing? What got you into writing? Well, that's another interesting story. 
Um, I found my voice very late in life, actually in my my early, just after my 50th birthday. Okay. I'd had a reoccurring nightmare that my husband, who this year would be married 25 years, um, died. And it was such a devastating reoccurring nightmare. I had it for like six times over the space of two months. And I woke him up and I said, Tim, this is driving me crazy. I keep having this nightmare. And he said, you know what, why don't you write it down? Obviously there's something that is on your subconscious, write it down. I wrote it down and the first chapter of Redemption Songs was born. Wow. So that book took about a year and a half to write. Friendship Estate, I started it in May and I finished it in October. It's that book when you're on a roll. That book invaded my imagination. Um, I had been going through some emails and I found an email that my brother had sent me on December 28th, 2018. And it was about some research that he had done into the Finlayson family, mm-hmm. which is from Mandeville, St. Elizabeth area. And the first chapter of the book is actually based on a will that um, one of the Finlayson's wrote. Yeah, it was in his will and he asked his doctor, Thomas Finlayson asked his doctor to marry his wife when he died. Wow. So my imagination kind of- Went wild. (laughs) Yeah, kind of went wild and this book just poured out of me. Man, you know, it's- it's, it's one of those books that from the very first chapter, I, I have to confess, it was difficult to read that first couple of chapters. Very difficult to read because you, we know about the horrors of slavery. You know, mm. we've seen a million slavery movies. In fact, I don't watch them anymore. I stopped watching them years ago. Mm. And um, we know about the horrors of slavery and the lash and the whip. But what happened to the women in slavery? It's usually kind of glossed over, you know, the, the level of, of brutality and you didn't gloss it over at all. How well, I, ha- I have to be honest with you. I decided with this book, um, how the, the genesis of this was the email, but I also saw an interview that Patrick Chung did. He's a football player, American football player with the New England Patriots. Right. And he decided to... to sit out this year's season because he wanted to protect his family from COVID. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he expressed his frustrations at being black in America, but he also said, you know, we never experienced that in Jamaica. When you were, if you were Jamaican, you were just Jamaica. It's how you grew up. It's how you, co- you commanded yourself. That is how you earned respect. And I thought, you know what, that is so true. Just another way that Jamaicans can lead. So that was in the back of my mind. And the juxtaposition here with Harrington um, Dunbarton, whose family has been so disgusting from birth. I mean, they were basically told to leave England because they were such reprehensible people. And they came to Jamaica and they they did that. Juxtapose that with Lyndon Holborn, was a man of principle and a a kind, generous man, but firm, you know, understood what 
he, the times that he was living in, did the best he could during the times that he was living in and worked to change. Right. And Margaret, I wanted to have Margaret and, and Cotton juxtaposed against each other. Right. Because Margaret was as much a slave as Cotton was. Which, which was very interesting because a lot of times, as I say, when you read books that are set in slavery, you know, you, the brutality against the slaves is clear. But mm -hmm. in your book, the brutality against the, the actual mistress, the, the white woman, the owner herself, you know, her, th that brutality was actually also a part of it. That, you know, it was we, a lot more common. It was yeah. a lot more common. Yeah. And it wasn't talked about. It was mm -hmm. never, ever talked about. And what in in going through what she went through and in having Nana be the one that saved her mm -hmm. and helped her, the bond that those two women had, they made a point of teaching that bond and building that bond between the two brothers. Right. That's, I'm not going to have you give away the book, you know, <laughs> but um, the two brothers. Okay, so let me backtrack a little bit because this book is in some ways kind of based in truth and it's also in a, a little bit based in fantasy. You know, it's alternative history. Yes, it's, it's a rewritten history, so to speak, a history in which a black child and a white child, child of a slave, child of you know, a plantation owner, were, were brothers really. And, well, um, they were both children of a plantation. <laughs> yes, but you know, back in the days, they didn't really yeah. own the black one. So even though he was a child of a plantation owner, he would have been still, you know, put in the kitchen or something to work and he would never have been tolerated. And the, the plantation owner, he didn't really want to tolerate him. It was the wife that insisted. Well, that's another interesting story. And again, that's when my brother stepped in. Because... He read the first draft mm -hmm. and he came back to me and he said, all right, you need to read a book. I said, what book? He said, read this book, Jamaica. And I have it right here. I'm going to show it to you. It's called Jamaica as it was, as it is, and as it may be. Okay. It was the devil's own to try and track down this book, but it's a scholarly selection mm -hmm. and it's been it's been noted by scholars to be a true and accurate depiction of this time. I shall look for that book. I shall track it down. Well, when I first read it, I was horrified because I'm reading it from the perspective of anti-slavery, anti-bigotry, anti-racism. Mm -hmm. And I remember calling him and I said, Andrew, why in God's name have you made me read this book? It's absolutely horrible says, okay, read it again. I said, why? He goes, read it again from the perspective of the man who is writing it. Because that man is your great, great, great grandfather. Wow. Well, mind blown. So I read it again. And I read it from the perspective of what he was trying to say. So and I'll be stick a pin right there. So who was he? Was he a plantation owner, your great, 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 great grandfather? 
Bernard Martin Sr. was his name. And yes, he was a plantation owner. But his arguments for how slavery ended mm -hmm. were very pertinent. And had it ended that way, we would have had a completely different Jamaica. We would have had a completely different Caribbean. We would have had a completely different America mm. had he ended it the way that he had, that he suggested in this book. And, you know, I, I didn't, I, I realized that I had to bring his voice into the book, not just his thoughts, but I had to bring his voice. So one of the arguments that they have at the end of the book between the English lords and the foursome, as I call them, is directly out of this book. Okay. And it's Bernard's own musings about how slavery should have ended. So you actually rewrote, you wrote it based on what Bernard thought it should, it should have been. I did. I did. I rewrote a lot of it. And I, re I rewrote a lot of the ending of it. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning, you're right, the book is going one way and then all of a sudden it veers yeah. and it goes somewhere else. But in all honesty, the way that the book veers, all the steps were there if somebody had just taken them. Had just taken them. But you know, it, it's the same today, you know. It's, it's will, it's a lack of will. That's why we have the kind of crime we have. It's a lack of will, why our politics is, it, a lot of things is just a lack of will. It's not that we don't know what to do or our politicians don't see the steps in front of them or anything like that. They just lack the will for whatever reason. And that's, and that's why I had Bernard have the last word in the book. The last three paragraphs of the book are his musings. Oh. And it's so true. If they had just turned a little to the left or a little to the right, it would have been so, so different. So different. And it's, it's tragic, really. But it's yeah, tragic. And, and slavery was about economics, really. You know, um, that's really all. Totally. It, it was commerce. It was totally. economics. And the brutal. And he is brutal. Yeah. He's brutal in bringing that out. Mm -hmm. Brutal in bringing that out. And Absolutely brutal. He did a great job in also just bringing out that point and the brutality of it, of the commerce of slavery and what it took to keep it, but then also what it took to change it. Because you brought in actual characters yes. like William Wilberforce, you know, who we all know, um, were brought into the book yeah. in part of this alternate reality yeah. that was created. Well, I really did want to show that, a, you know, a slight pivot to the left, a slight pivot to the right, that book would not have been alternative history. Mm -hmm. Isn't that how um, life is, though? A slight pivot to the left, a slight pivot to the right. We would not be in lockdown, COVID lockdown. <laughs> you know, a slight pivot. It, to it's the so left. true. But, you know, they, as they say, hindsight is twenty twenty. Mm -hmm. And is. the other thing that, that my brother really pushed me, and this... I, I mean, I have to tell, I have to give him credit for giving this book direction. In reading this book from what I was taught in school, what I know of, of life, right. being, you know, anti-racism, anti-bigotry, mm -hmm. anti-slavery, it was a very, very difficult book to read. But 
taking into consideration now and taking the emotion out of it and reading the man's words, trying to learn the mind of the man through the words that he had written and eliminating his tone. It's a completely different read. Right, right. But for you, you, how was it writing this book? I mean, what, what was that like for you? Because as I said, for me, reading it, especially the first few chapters, was very difficult. And I, I keep saying that, but I want readers to understand that you are going to have difficulty reading the first few chapters, but you have to get through them. Because to get to, to, get to what makes it a great book, you have to get through them. And they are Im- important to setting up the whole book. Uh, mm-hmm. But what was it like for you writing those chapters? A lot of sleepless nights. Um, it, it was very, very difficult because of, I mean, no woman can go through life without saying she hasn't been challenged sexually in some way or another. Every woman. And every woman. So it was, it was a very difficult, it was very difficult to write, but it also was very necessary because in doing so, I found my power. in putting it all into the book I realized you know something it made Margaret stronger Mm -hmm. it made Margaret determined Mm -hmm. and I think Nana says it best the Scottish rose has found her thorns and that was something that I really you know apart from from the color issue in friendship estate. I also attack women's rights. Yes, you do. And I was, I was actually going to say that, that it's an empowering book for women. Yeah. Uh, when you see what Margaret went through, what Cotton went through, what these women went through. And it's just this week, we had a poetry, uh, Black Poets Speak Black, an event that I did mm. virtually. And somebody mm. ended it with Sojourner Truths, Ain't I a Woman? Yeah. And when she started saying that, and you realize just how long women have been fighting to be, and have had to empower themselves. And that's the whole point. Well, you have to also look at Anne Holborn, who had never suffered anything like this. The first threat that she had ever had of something like this happening to her was after Lyndon had died. And Lyndon knew that something was gonna come down the pipeline and he had made provisions for that to protect her and to protect his daughter. So Anne's strength came from the fact that she was a strong woman. Mm -hmm. Margaret's strength came from the fact that she was tested. Mm -hmm. Queen Nandy's strength came from the fact that she was tested, but she also came from a long line of queens. Right. And she knew who she she was. She knew her responsibility to her people. Mm -hmm. And she was instrumental in helping one of the characters find his duty. Right. Right. Yeah, it's, (laughs) it's funny. Every time you think about the role of women and, you know, March is International Women's History Month. So interestingly enough, this program is going to be the first one in March. So (laughs) 
kind of like setting it up. We didn't set out to yeah. talk about women's rights, but that's what I love about shelf life is that you kind of sometimes never know where it's going to go because it's about the book, but it's also about all the themes and all the other things that come out of the book. And I think way beyond the, just the story of friendship estate, mm -hmm. there is so much richness to the underlying themes, you yes. know, um, the underlying theme about justice, the underlying theme of people who will go the extra mile because they believe in human rights. And we, we struggle yeah. with human rights in this, in this country, in, in all the countries today. We struggle with giving people human rights. And we- Because we struggle with respect. Yes, yes. Human, just, just respect for human beings. We struggle- That's it. That. Yeah. We yeah. struggle with respect. And the one thing that I tried to bring out in Friendship Estate was that every one of these characters earned respect. Yes. Yes. They weren't given it because they were born into it. They earned every inch of respect that they got. And I really wanted to bring that out when they went to England. Because I, I wanted the readers to understand that the work done by the characters like Declan and, and Liam and Enos right. paved the way. So by the time they got there, their respect had been earned. Right. And when they saw the measure of the man, they realized that the respect was due. Mm. So... That's Friendship Estates. Tell me a little bit about the other book, because that one I haven't read yet. Redemption Songs, yes. So Redemption Songs was my first endeavor. And I guess I do like strong women characters. <laughs> um, so do I. <laughs> so do I. I, I, I do that. tend to gravitate to writing about strong women. Um, Redemption Songs is a story about a girl whose husband dies. They were married for um, 20, 21 years when he dies. And her very strong family picks her up and moves her back to Jamaica. And she's completely lost. She moves has no back, idea. Moves her back to Jamaica from where? Orlando. Oh, okay. And um, she's completely lost. She has no idea what she's going to do. And she finds a project which ends up unraveling family secrets three generations old. Ooh. And she sets about writing the wrongs of the past. So Redemption Songs was very, very well received. Mm -hmm. And my brother, who I'm beginning to believe now is my muse, <laughs> calls me up one day and he goes, you know, Redemption Songs is really good, but it could be better. I said, how? He says, you need to talk about how they came to redemption, how they came to need redemption. You need to write the road to redemption. So now you have to go back and write the prequel. I have to write the prequel. But I have to finish a book that I was working on. Actually, when, I, when Friendship Estate invaded me, I was working on another book about Cuba. And I put that one aside to write Friendship Estate. So I've gone back to the Cuba one. What's the connection with Cuba? My imagination. Absolutely my imagination. I saw a 
documentary many, many years ago. I'm Cuba has been on my mind since 2004. And I saw a documentary that the premise of it was that island of Cuba was part of the lost city of Atlantis. Wow. You really have quite an imagination there, Linda. So I've been told. <laughs> but I have to tell you, my mind is a bad neighborhood. You don't want to be up there for very long. Yeah, you don't want to be in my head either. Believe me. Yeah, nobody wants to live up here. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to live up here. Yeah. Bad neighborhood, bad neighborhood. <laughs> so I try to get all of these things out and on, on paper as quickly as I can. Um, but again, that theme that I wanted to take on in I Am Cuba is a little bit different because now I want to take on capitalism versus um, communism. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a big one. That's a big one. And, you know, capitalism has kind of led to unmitigated greed, whereas communism has led to fascism. So yeah, it, it, and it's that middle road that I like to walk, you know, it's that middle road. There, there has to be a middle road between the absolute greed of capitalism and the heading down the road to fascism of yeah. capitalism. There has to be something in the middle where well, there, is. there is, but there is there's socialism. But yeah. the problem is it's been so vilified. I know, I know. I live, I live in America, my dear. You said the word socialism and every cockroach run. Right. <laughs> um, it's, it's been completely vilified because it's been misunderstood. I mean, Medicare is socialism. It is. Social it is. security is, is socialism. Well, to, Welfare. A slight, to a slightly less extent because we actually pay into that one. But, but uh, you know something, with all due respect, even in a socialist democracy, as explained to me by Eddie Stiago when I was failing an economics class. Um, socialism, socialist democracy. Ha keep, I, I have to remember this exactly because it really was a stroke of genius. Um, he said that in socialist, socialist democracy, the weakest link is where you always start. And I thought to myself, you know what? <laughs> that's, that's pretty interesting. Because if you're only as weak as your weakest link. You're also only as strong as your strongest link. Exactly. But he, he looked at it from the point of view that, you know, help the weakest and it lifts everybody up. So it, it sounds to me, Linda, like you have a lot more books in you waiting to come out. Well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you another interesting story because this has become a family affair. And my mother's family, my grandmother was a Henricus and my grandfather was a Delivante. Okay. So my mother's brother, Michael, we're talking one day and he says, you know, your great your great, great grand or your great grandfather. I can't keep track of the greats. There's so many of them. He lived in Panama and he wrote two books, Panama songs and Panama papers. I said, you're joking. He says, no. So I go in search of those books. And again, it was like finding a needle in a haystack. Lo and behold, I find them the same place that I found 
Bernard's book with the same covers that it's a scholarly um, inclusion. So I finally got them from England. I had to order them from the book depository in England. I haven't touched them yet because I have to finish this Cuba book. (laughs) So, So writing is in your bloodline. You can't escape it. I mean, no, yeah, I just seem to have found my voice very, very late in life. What did you do before you started writing? What, what, what did you? Well, I'm actually a travel agent. I'm one of the 1% of travel agents still left making a living off of selling travel, at least until COVID hit. Yeah. Um, And that dried up. And the thing that was so devastating for me was I was working 10, 12 hours a week, six days a week, writing on the weekends just to basically settle my mind. And then all of a sudden that stopped. Nothing, yeah. And I, my body didn't stop. I mean, my body was used to this go, go, go. And my mind was used to this Mm -hmm. go, go, go and answering 120 emails a day. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, nothing. So I just found solace in writing. I took all of that angst and I took all of that insecurities and um, turned it into friendship estate. And what was gratifying was it brought my brother and I closer together, which was something that, you know, that meant a great deal to me. Mm -hmm. And it brought other members of my, my uncle Howard who He's always the second person to read my books. And, um, you know, I, I have my I have my tribe. Good. Yeah, and, you have to have your tribe. I have my tribe, too. Um, as you know, I'm an author as well. And mm-hmm. I have my tribe, a couple of people who they're the first two people to read my books and ones who will tell me honestly, you know, love it, but... You got to fix that. You got to do this. You got to do that. Well, Linda, we look forward to so much more. The Cuba book, the book about uh, socialism versus communism, um, the book about the dreams that you keep having. Yes. (laughs) The bad neighborhood in your head. The bad neighborhood in my head. I like that. I really like that. I'm going to steal that one. It's all yours. That one. In fact, it sounds like a great title for a book. <laughs> it's a bad neighborhood in my head. Yeah, it's it's hard to live it, but it's, it's you know we Jamaicans we can we have a turn of phrase. And honestly, that was the other thing that um was very difficult in my writing because what as Jamaicans we're oratory. Mm-hmm. You know, all our stories are are spoken and we use our voice and we use the cadence of our voice and our hands and our eyes and and all of that. So it it was very difficult to get that onto the page. And that was a a big challenge because I I found that I could write the way that I speak, Mm -hmm. but I had to condense it. I I, I mean, it, it was quite a challenge. I mean, it's hard to write a kistite. Eh? Yeah. And it's hard to write. <laughs> you know? It is. And, okay. you know, that was so important for me, especially for Nana. Yeah. I really wanted Nana to have all those Jamaicanisms mm-hmm. all and be able to communicate that because that was a lot of her power was concentrated 
in the fact that she could terrify Brixton and Dexter with a look. With a look. Well, you know, we all grew up like that, though, didn't we? With our we back, did. back in the day, because I don't think they have those looks anymore. But back in the day, it was just one look. You know, your dad would just give you one look or your mother would give you one look and all nonsense would cease immediately. You yeah. know, they didn't have yeah. to. It would just cease immediately. And but there was a Nana in my life. There was several Nanas throughout my life. But the character of Nana is based on... Um, my grandfather's nanny. Wow. Who, you know, um, this is this is what I love about talking to the authors because you read a book and you you don't realize sometimes how much of it is based on well we all write based on what we know, eh? But mm-hmm. um you don't realize how much of it sometimes is based on real people. Like one of my books I call it fictional reality because it's my life but written as fiction. You know, mm-hmm. with a couple of people thrown in there and people who went through my life with me um, when they read here's a hundred dollars by yourself a life they know exactly who they are yeah. but unless you were yeah. there you wouldn't know that you know well Nana is, is based on a, a real person Enos Knowles is based on a on my grandfather who's he was a lawyer his name was Enos Finlayson and his firm was Knowles and Finlayson so I decided to call him Enos Knowles. Ah, love it, love it. Well, Linda, it has been great, great chatting with you. The book is Friendship Estates. What is the one thing, and I'm putting you on the spot, the last word that you want people to take away from your book when they read it? Um, I think it would probably have to be, it would have to be Brixton's words. Um, and I'm paraphrasing here, when he told Nana that he and his mother built a bond so strong between their brothers that it tore through the hearts of men and broke the back of slavery. Wow. Yes, I remember those words, paraphrased. <laughs> yes, so that that is the last thing, folks, that we want you to take away. The book is called Friendship Estates. I want to say thank you, Linda for being with me on Shelf Life. Sounds like when I do finally beat COVID and come to Jamaica, we have to sit down and have many more conversations. And when the next book drop, remember us here at Shelf Life? We're here. Judith, you will be my first call because the service that you are providing to the Jamaican diaspora is so necessary and so needed. Jamaicans are among the most lively, entertaining, vibrant diaspora out there. And we need to keep our stories, man. We need to yes. keep telling our stories. We, we need to keep telling our stories. Well, thank you so much, Linda, for telling our stories. Ladies and gentlemen, Linda Edwards, and the name of the book is Friendship Estates. Thank you, thank Linda. You. What good. You too. Thank you for watching Shelf Life. I hope you learned some stuff the same way I learned some stuff. And this conversation went in many directions. But at the end of the day, it was about who most of us are. It's about us as a people. Anyway, I'll see you again next week. Same place, same time. Join me again for some more Shelf Life. And we'll see what else I have on my shelf. If you haven't yet subscribed to this podcast, please do so. The video of this interview is available on my YouTube channel. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel. 
visit my website at jfallonreed.com and you can download your copy of my free audiobook, Time and Seasons. And remember to subscribe to my other podcast, Exchanging Pain for Praise.